Friendly Fire deals with a lot of tough subjects. But we just wanted to give a special heads up that today's film, which centers around a child soldier in West Africa, features depictions of sexual violence and child abuse. Your hosts are going to talk about those things in this episode, and we just wanted folks to be aware of that going in. Skip to next week's episode if that's not a subject you want to hear a podcast about. How do you know there's someone who's been to Africa at your party? I'll tell you. I'm the fireman of going to Africa. I've been to Kenya a couple of times, once for work and once for a wedding. I got mugged on the streets of Addis Ababa for my iPhone, which was the second time I've been mugged for an iPhone. The first time was in Brooklyn. I've been to northern Nigeria and Senegal in recent years. They're great. My passport is running out of blank pages. I love Africa. I think everybody should go. But in all the places I've been, all the people I've met and history I've read, nothing prepared me for what I saw in watching Beasts of No Nation. It is a brutal and unflinching, but also utterly beautiful picture of a very specifically unnamed African nation at war. That's because Kerry Joji Fukunaga directs the film. He is an incredibly talented storyteller, both narratively and visually. His work here is astounding. In this film, Fukunaga also acts as his own cinematographer for the screenplay he also wrote. If that sounds like a heavy amount of weight to carry, it is. But it pales in comparison to what an audience is asked to endure as we witness the life of Agu. He's our main character, a boy forced to join a group of soldiers rebelling against what remains of their fallen government. Led by a commander played by the great Idris Elba, who is a toxic combination of utterly charismatic, as the most effective cult leaders are, and sadistically ambitious. Along the way, Abraham Atta's performance as Agu is riveting and tragic. He is not merely a child actor, the way his character is not merely a child. His work is revelatory. We've seen some films for Friendly Fire that unflinchingly wade into the very worst aspects of humanity during wartime, and Beast of Donation is one of those films. But what makes this film special is that its depictions of its many atrocities and those who commit them trigger both revulsion and awe. It's not violence for violence's sake. These explicit details are depicted in service of a powerful message. Maybe we are all a bit closer to being beasts than we like to admit. I just want to be happy in this life. On today's Friendly Fire, Beasts of No Nation. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast where, I mean, fuck, you know, like what? Wow. Heavy. Did not see this one coming. What's your name, Ben? <laughs> I don't want to tell you. I'm worried what you'll do to me if I tell you. I'm John Roderick. Yeah, I'm Adam Pranica. <laughs> this is the Friendly Fire podcast. Ben is a little overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed by our feature this week. Usually I'm just whelmed. Now I'm overwhelmed. I was texting with Ben last night, uh, 
And I was like, hey, are you planning to watch this movie uh, with your lovely wife? And he was like, yeah, I, I usually do. The night before, we'll save one of the films for a together film. And I was like, you might want to might want to rethink that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure what her tolerance is for Bleak, though she did marry Ben. So, Wow. Yeah. I think this this movie is up there with Come and See. I think that's fair. I think it's I think it's definitely on the Mount Bleakmore. It's on the Mount Bleakmore <laughs> of films, right? It sure is, man. It's just hard when it's a kid. It's it it makes it extra hard. I think if this film did not cast Idris Elba as his role, it would have been even bleaker. There's a light inside him, even when he's playing dark, that I think helped the movie. It helped this film be palatable. I think that and its intense beauty as a film, visually, I thought, yeah. were its saving graces. But like as a subject and as a story, it's as tough as it comes. Sure is. Um, it is very easy to just turn away from really tough subjects like this and almost feels like the right thing to do. Like, I, I don't know if it's like a, I'm just miswired, but like, I, I, I almost felt like bad watching this. Like, like I was, I was doing a bad thing. Like, treating this as, as an entertainment. Like, this, the subject matter as an entertainment. Hmm. Wow. I, Interesting. Uh, yeah. That... <laughs> That's too bad to hear. I mean, do you feel like that is a quality of an effective film when it has that kind of power? Like, the power to hurt, I think, I think personally, is a trait in films that I admire and like. It feels like a taboo that it's breaking somehow. I got the sense that Kerry Fukunaga is a much more humane filmmaker than the guy that made come and see like come and see the kid was famously subjected to like an extremely unhealthy diet so that he would age nine years in the nine months that they shot the film. And, uh, and I don't think that the kids in this movie to my filmmaker, I like, it looks like great care was taken that, uh, they weren't exposed to like traumatizing imagery, even though they were kind of portraying very traumatic things the thing about come and see and its child actor was that as his conditions deteriorated like he became more and more blank but i found something so affecting about the child actors in this film in their expressiveness in their hyper expressiveness sometimes even like uh i thought they were Obviously, like very beautiful, but like their ability to evoke feeling due to their expression in their circumstances, I thought was super powerful and and really well done. I thought these were great little actors. And their expressiveness was often a lack of emotion or a lack of emotiveness, right? I mean, there was a lot of time where the kids were portraying a kind of dead-eyed hopelessness or there wasn't a lot of... Um, there, there were no histrionics, com considering what they were going through. Yeah, you know, they, they, they grew up in, in the, se in a sense, over the course of a twenty-four hour period. You right? do get to a b it though, like you get imagination TV for twenty minutes, and you get like their joyful faces, right, right. and I think that's, I think that's fairly key. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You see the tra transformation, and you know what's what's been lost and what's being sublimated. Yeah. 
I think critically, Agu comes from a pretty well-off family too. So the the sense of of loss is like the needle's really pegged. Like the the extent of of loss, where like he witnesses his mother stuffed into a, a car and driven away, and then he witnesses his father and brother killed, and he goes from like comparatively idyllic childhood to like being threatened with death at every turn you know in a in a five minute span you guys obviously powerfully affected by by the tone and by the by events in this movie but this is also um it's the premise of every disney film yeah i mean kid (laughs) uh, watches his parents die in a circus fire or whatever and then goes on a grand adventure um, where they are made into a, made into like a heroic, grown person, um, and then a a UN worker tries to tries to provide therapy to Dumbo. <laughs> right. Well, right. Dumbo doesn't even have the the benefit of of someone trying to give poor Dumbo therapy. When when Simba <laughs> is raped by Scar, I think that was the part of Lion King that that hurt the most. But the song was great. <laughs> Throughout a lot of yeah, there weren't a lot of songs in this, but this isn't an uncommon story in history. I think one of the surprises, and this is not in the top five of surprises in this film, but toward the end we realize that this is a modern moment in time, and it's not like the '80s or the '70s in Africa. Like as soon as the brand new Range Rover drives up to the compound that's that's acting as an orphanage for these kids you're made to understand that this is in the present day. I, maybe that's another thing that you bring to watching this movie is, you know, the way the war in Bosnia was super confusing to watch just right. because you couldn't understand who the players are or what they're, what like, they're, why are uh, you so mad at each other? <laughs> yeah. Right. What's your, what's your end goal here? Do you, is it really about like, who cares who owns Sarajevo? Can't you just hang out? <laughs> uh, but but watching these civil wars in Africa and not understanding, I mean, even if you do kind of have a picture of the lay of the land, like Sierra Leone, what this wasn't a religious war, it, where in neighboring areas there were religious wars, and it wasn't really an ethnic war. It was just a war over resources and power. It was hard to uh, to parse it, uh, watching it in American media, uh, again, partly because American media wasn't that interested in it. You know, it wasn't like daily front page news. It was always a sidebar. But boy, you sure heard about the atrocities. Many, many of the even primary actors, but most of the background actors are veterans of those wars in this film. And you can't fake that look. (laughs) There There is a grizzled affect to a person who fought in Sierra Leone that uh, you don't direct, I don't think. Did you guys see this movie prior to this? No, this is my first time. This is first time, yeah. Because I watched it when it was released. The first Netflix movie is this one. The one that famously got snubbed for Oscars because it was Netflix. Well, it got snubbed for Oscars and also just the hilarious Hollywood business crapola where Netflix released it and they'd made some deal. They violated some, some understanding with, uh, with movie theaters 
right where movie theaters had some exclusive 90 days where they would be the only place to watch the movie before it went on netflix and so all the lowe's chain and the um, united artists all those movie theaters refused to show it and so it didn't get a wide release and ended up being an art house film where it had it had the potential to have been a I don't know about blockbuster, but it had a, it had the potential to be more widely seen. Right. What a brave stand for the regal <laughs> cinema chain to take to block to boycott this film. It seemed uh, to boycott it for no reason other than just some business, you know, trying to just slap down Netflix. Yeah, they don't want to let Pandora's box get opened. Careers are at stake when you do stuff like that, right? Yeah. Like like Abraham Atta should be rewarded at the highest levels for his work in this film. And he and this film should guarantee him a life of great work. And that is a little bit in question because a film like this doesn't get seen the way it should. Yeah. Well, and Idris Elba, I mean, I was I was stunned by his performance watching it the first yeah. time. I was terrified this time that I was going to see uh, cracks in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't. You know, I loved it again. Just um, like you say, Adam, he has a light inside, but uh, but also just like I j- he just captured something very real about this flawed guy. Yeah, he's one of the few actors whose whole like his whole physicality is different, and when he plays different roles, like he doesn't look like the same person that played Stringer Bell. That's not how I plan on doing things. It's so wild. He's incredible. I agree. His physicality is a crucial component of what makes him a great actor. And he's making a lot of subtle choices here that really work. You know, like these moments occur during acts of atrocity. But, you know, when he's at the front of his child army, standing two feet above them, like leading them into war and he's shot from behind, like and you're and you're like with the child army going into into battle. It's these are incredible scenes. Yeah, they are. I usually, when when we watch a film that's directed by a young director, a kind of like upstart director, I bring a harder eye to them and I have a lot of- You hate their hands. I do. I'm really reluctant to- You like want to cut them. their hands off? Jeez. Well, you know, that's part of, uh, it's part of my culture, Ben. But um, I loved the way this movie was directed and- um, the idea that he also was his own cinematographer. Yeah, that's amazing. And wrote the, or you know, not wrote the movie, but 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 partly wrote it. I mean, it's based on a book. Um, yeah. I just, I was, I came out of it just like, uh, whatever you need, director, um, <laughs> I will, I will be a fan of you now. Yeah, that's got to be very inspiring to all of your actors. I mean, to have a DP break his arm and be like, okay, I guess I'll take the first and second most difficult jobs on an away game like this is amazing. And he does a great job. Like nothing suffers. Yeah. And you could argue it, it's better than it could ever be for that reason. One of the most hand of the director moments in this movie is the subject of some, uh, plagiarism accusations. However, I was reading this, uh, this article in art forum or no art in Artnet about, uh, how, if it wasn't in DeviantArt, I don't think John would have read it. <laughs> no, no. Although my my uh, subscription to DeviantArt has lapsed. I'm, oh, yeah. I have oh, to no. I have to look into that. I'm sorry, but uh, when when uh, 
when Agu is high and the and the green colors shift to red and it's just kind of like a kind of yeah. like a a fever dream of combat uh that is very heavily influenced and if not directly ripped off from a uh an Irish photographer named Richard Mossy uh who is quoted in this in this Artnet article saying like yeah like Kerry Fukunaga like got in touch with me and said he was being he was like really interested in how I achieved this look when I did uh when I did this work and uh, I don't get any credit for the f- in the film and like it doesn't seem like uh the <laughs> It seems like they just went ahead and took this idea and used it for themselves, which is not a great look. Uh, and the article has like some side-by-side comparisons of frames from the film and photographs by Richard Mossy that uh, are pretty. It's pretty hard to ignore the similarities. That's pretty tough. Like I could, I could see this both ways because I don't think color timing is proprietary. I think it's shitty that this guy wasn't given credit on some level for being the inspiration for it. Yeah. But I also like I don't I don't put Kerry Fukunaga on blast for being inspired by it and using it in a film. One of the most interesting parts of the production of this film is that Kerry Fukunaga color timed his entire film himself. Wow. And that is another job that he just took <laughs> that you're really not supposed to because it's so much work. Some of the best directors are the ones that can do as well or better than every other job on set. But how yeah. you develop that expertise is like, I don't, I have no idea, you know, like, I don't know how you have enough time <laughs> between being born in like the late seventies and directing this film in, in 2014 to like develop that level of expertise. And coloring film is fucking hard and it is so granular and time consuming and like it is my least favorite part of an edit, really. You can go over the same shit over and over and over again and you're A being uh, shots on down the line. Like it's just unending. It's just a pile of shit. It's so hard. It's unending and, and it's one of those things where you kind of like, it's like when your palate gets like overwhelmed. Totally. Uh, yeah. You stop being able to see it. You can't tell the difference. You can't tell what's good anymore. Yeah. It's a, it is a hard thing to do. And I, you know, I was thinking about it reading this article, like how many times I've been a part of a music video or a commercial or some kind of shoot where we put a bunch of inspirational images up on a board and, uh, you know, you make a, you make a vision board or a, or a, (laughs) you know, a collage of, of the, kinds of imagery you want to draw on and and I, th- I think that's how most you know films are are made is like you you are making reference to previous things and the nicest thing you can say about it is that Richard Massey came up with something like really compellingly unique and it's possible to draw a direct connection between the inspiration of that and this movie but um yeah I'm not sure I'm not sure, like, how do, how do you, like, license an idea for how to take a picture, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Ry Cooter taught Keith Richards the open G tuning, and Keith didn't really ever credit Ry. Just took it and wrote, like, six albums based on it. Hmm. 
<laughs> right, but like, what do you do? You you like start every album with like this one goes out to Rye Cooter. <laughs> <laughs> down, down, down. Uh, yeah. The lately there have been a lot of instances where people have successfully sued an artist for plagiarizing a a in in music certainly a chord progression or um or a sound and it's partly a product of the the era of sampling where people were actually taking prior recordings and turning them into um a new song but but it's the very nature of art to steal um like every artist ever has I it's mean, the nature of man it's the nature of man thank you adam I've always said that good artists borrow, great artists steal. Wow. That's my quote. Wow. Yeah, that's good. That's good. You got that from Abraham Lincoln, I, right? No, I came up with that myself. <laughs> but it's but that's it's the most meta joke there's ever that, been. That that is so good. <laughs> if I had a if I had an orange bell here, I would ring it for you, but no, I, 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 I can't claim that I even came up with the idea of stealing the idea. <laughs> Which is why I'm not a great artist. <laughs> I think that's kind of a modern, uh, a modern event where an, where an artist would. I mean, obviously, artists have yelled and screamed about it and stomped their feet when somebody comes along and takes their thing and makes something better with it. I'm starting to like this whole sharing thing. Anyway, the 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 way this film puts us in the in first person perspective uh, a few times is really. Uh, effective and that being in that and that drug induced kind of fever state it almost veers into it's the only it's the only place in the movie where it kind of gets um a little magical or um john you've done brown brown did they get it right well it's really hard to um to replicate the experience of being on drugs on film right it's it's such a um being on drugs is so uh, encompassing that just watching the visuals of it, it's never enough to communicate. The only way to truly replicate the feeling of being on drugs is to shoot a very close-up shot of Willem Dafoe's face with a very wide lens. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah, the carpet in that film, right? Is one of the closest approximations of uh, like what it feels like to be really, really <laughs> torqued. And uh, I'm, I'm still astonished by what that movie accomplished. Is Brown Brown heroin? Well, it's a, a couple... A couple of different things go by that name, um, and one of them is a speedy drug, uh, with you know an amphetamine mixed with gunpowder. Gunpowder contains nitroglycerin. Yeah, it's nitroglycerin. It's not the phosphorus, but nitroglycerin. Yeah. And nitroglycerin is a is a thing that you take if you if you're having a heart attack, right? So it affects your um, it affects the way the drug goes into your blood it's a blood thinner i think nitroglycerin or, um so yeah they 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 take a break a bullet apart pour it in put the amphetamine they they cook it cut your head like a professional wrestler scoop some of that in there that's right just just pop it in your in your wound yeah i had never encountered 
the this as a as an idea. I had a cocktail at a bar in Seattle once that had. They're not doing brown brown at tennis academies, Ben. <laughs> uh, you had a you had. I'm sorry, Ben. You were telling your war story about having a, an expensive cocktail in Seattle. It had gunpowder in it. Yeah. And I wonder if that was if 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 there's some idea that it would change the effect. I bet. I, mean, I didn't notice anything. Just tasted a little bit. Did it keep you up? No, not particularly. Like in a, in a way that alcohol is a depressant, like maybe the gunpowder uh, keeps you up there Counter, a little bit. Counteracts, yeah. I drank huh. 25 of them and didn't even get slightly drunk, so. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> Canceled it out. <laughs> but it's just, it's the same as, it's the same idea as snorting something, right? It just gets closer to the, the, uh, the blood vessels. You know, you put something in a mucous membrane. Not a lot of clean needles around these parts. Right. And it's a lot harder to, to do an enema yeah. out in the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> Those cocaine enemas. It's a hell of a combination. I thought that's what the uh, I thought that's what the red water was in that trench. I thought it was Ugh. just everyone doing enemas. Ugh. I want to be real about something. I went to a tennis camp one time when I was a kid, but I never went to a tennis academy, and I was never good at tennis. All right. Mm. Well, thanks for setting the record straight. <laughs> Your Rod Laver chest tattoo would indicate something different, Ben. I don't even know who that is, Adam. <laughs> you use the Laver grip when you jack off? <laughs> I love you, Ben. Uh, ben, you, you, know, you know Rod by his shoes. Yeah. Right? That, that, would be your, uh, that would be your entry into the Rod Laver uh, Yeah. Uh, over, uh, Listen, oh, world. Ben's got three stripes on the side of his dick. I think oh. 1970s tennis is an aspirational style. Yes, mm. You're, you, you close in on it sometimes. I play in those margins. That ball was on the line. When he is high on that stuff and they go into a town, there was a close-up on what appeared to me to be a minaret, and I wondered if there was an implicit religious element to this conflict in that moment because they do spend a lot of time establishing the Christianity that his family practices and that his town practices. There is a large Muslim population in Sierra Leone, um, but it's not there. In my understanding, it was never, uh, it never played a major role in, um, I mean, there, there are a lot of different, tribes represented in in um, a lot of ethnicities in Sierra Leone because like Liberia um, you know Liberia is a is an African nation that was that was established by American slaves going back to Africa and starting a country an African country Liberia you know lib- liberty oh, liberation yeah. uh, Sierra Leone is um, is a version of that, except uh, it was the country was formed earlier by um, by British slaves. Uh, when the British uh, abolished the slave trade, this was a country that um, that was again kind of a uh, an, it was an amalgam of people that weren't necessarily from there, but were coming there from various places within the within a newly abolished British. Slave enterprise. And the etymology of that country is like, leave us Leon? Yeah, see, yeah, right. 
Yeah. C. Yeah. Yes. Era Leone. Yes. This is yes. Leave us alone. Yes. For, C. For, yeah. yeah. Leave us alone. Right. That makes sense. <laughs> it's a little uh, bit of Spanish peppered in. Um, I so I understood that this was kind of a an intentionally not not about a specific country. Am, am I misunderstanding that? Is this supposed to no, be that's, Sierra Leone? No, that's right. No. no, he he um he he changed the details and the, and the details were changed in the novel, but it's but it's more or less based there. I mean, if it if this had if this had been about Liberia, uh there would have been a lot more brutality. That civil war got super duper duper ugly what do you think of the decision to anonymize the country though i think it's a good one i think it's a good one but it does it does the thing of for an american audience making all of central west africa seem sort of the same um which i think is a is a danger from an american viewpoint to say like oh well this could have happened in any african country because that's not necessary. I mean, that's not true, right? And and if you think about Rwanda, which isn't anywhere near this, I mean, it's in it's in uh, Central Africa, toward the other side. And to kind of say like, well, Rwanda or Sierra Leone or Liberia, I mean, they're they're different conflicts and they're different. Um, and you know, and sort of like now we're now we're watching Boko Haram and. You don't you don't want to you don't want to make the mistake of just looking at the surface of these conflicts, seeing similarities, and conflating them. Yeah, I mean Boko Haram is more comparable to Al Shabaab than the like rebel groups depicted in this film, from what I understand. Completely different. Uh, although that's happening in Nigeria and Niger, which are not geographically that distant. Um, and right. and the the um, the Una what, what, what Eco Mog or whatever yeah the that is a group so it's in this movie it's not called Eco Mog it's called something really close to that Eco Mod Eco Mod right and Eco Mog was a kind of African centric United Nations hmm. so not actually a UN but a sort of united African peacekeeping force that's very like Nigerian um, led and the economic community of West African states monitoring group is the is what Ecomog stands for so the fact that they the fact that they had Ecomog here in this movie and just sort of changed the acronym by one letter you know although although Sierra Leone is anonymized it's also really localized. Hmm. Yeah. Which I, I do, I agree that I think it's effective because it it's not trying to say about itself, like, this is a true story. Uh, it does give, it does allow for a creative license. But I just, you know, I, I, I also felt like that specificity is important because different things happened in different conflicts. It didn't feel like the religious aspects were hyper important in the context of of the conflict, right? This seemed very much a right. He doesn't look up at the minaret and like scowl yeah. and start firing at you know people coming out from afternoon prayer or anything like. The NDF's reason for being really kind of like 
snapped me to attention a bit. Like, Commandant makes the case that it's politicians selling off their country's resources at a fraction of what they're worth, and then in exchange for that, they're personally enriching themselves. And that uh, sounded like a familiar problem, (laughs) right? Are you ready to take to the jungles, Adam? Commandant's uh, looking directly into the camera during his description of that. (laughs) But I I do think that uh, religion plays a big role in this movie because Commandant uh, sets himself up as the head of a kind of religious, as a kind of religious figure. And a lot of the way that he recruits and indoctrinates these child soldiers is through... um, is through exploiting kind of village religions and um, yeah, they venerate him. They do, but you know, there's that there's that crucial scene where right after they are initiated into the into the troop, he lines them up and has a firing squad unload on them, but they're blanks. He does it and then turns to them and says, "Do you see? You're immune now. You're invincible." And makes these kids think that there were bullets in those guns and that they can't be, uh, they can't be killed. And that is a thing that happened among child soldiers. The idea that they would put sort of branches on themselves yeah. and, and those little, you can see little um, things on their uniforms. Yeah, the shaman made those. And yeah. the shaman is such a big part of, of that. Oh, I thought those were tefillin because they're all Orthodox Jews. Yeah, that's what it was. They became, they converted. It's a lengthy process. They're all wearing natural fibers too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The commandant, uh, he leads his soldiers in on that that bridge scene where uh, two I see is like cowering behind a abutment and the commandant, you know, just strides forward, immune to bullets. Commandant definitely performs his godhood by never ducking or flinching even right there's that scene where they're like watching as like another part of the of the squad is is trying to take a town and he's just like looking through his his eyepiece his monocular thing Uh, surveyor's (laughs) telescope right that's a great yeah little element and like bullets are, are hitting the dirt all around him and and he's just like oblivious to it almost there's like the indoctrination he does of the kids, but he also kind of believes it of himself by by appearance anyways. That's kind of true of all great generals, right? Or all great commanders that lead from the front. Yeah. What makes this film unique is how often you see the back of Idris Elba's head. Yeah. Yeah. And watch the bullets go, f- go flying by us as well. Yeah. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man, sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks. Every week, myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes, and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. 
Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. Yeah. The first scene where they really engage in combat, the ambush at the bridge... The first bridge. Right. They're, you know, they're hiding under the bridge. They're getting ready. I very definitely felt like, wait a minute, w- w- this squad is not ready for a mission. Like, right. I thought we were just going to wander around in the bush and, and take pot shots of opportunity. Are we seriously going to mount a, like a military assault? Yeah, and it wasn't even like guerrilla style. It was a frontal, cross-the-bridge type of battle. Yeah, and... and um the film accomplishes a feeling of like putting you under the bridge and you know, you almost are sort of checking your own gun belts because you feel that like, what are we about to do? No, no. You know, like the only training I've received is with us with some sticks. Right. I mean, he doesn't even our, our hero doesn't even have a gun in that scene. He's just, he's just still carrying bullets. Um, he, he's awarded his gun, uh, in uh, you know, in the aftermath, because they get enough guns to hand some out to the kids that don't have them yet. Right, right. But that was a that was a, a kind of an astonishing whole set piece, and certainly the, the one of the more brutal moments of the film when he's handed uh, the machete and told to kill to kill that engineer. That is a really tough scene, and you really feel that engineer's pain. I mean. Any, I think anybody that's like been in a in a situation where like a government authority is like has like determined that you're something that you're not and is going to like take some action about that, you know, like I was going to London with Jesse Thorne one time and he was wearing a hat at passport control and the guy like really took exception to it and and it became a little hairy for a second because this guy had like a thick scottish accent or something and we just couldn't understand what he was saying and i mean i take exception to it the idea of wearing a hat at passport control jesse should have been put in a in a holding tank yeah well you just think that in general but i do (laughs) (laughs) but you shouldn't wear a hat in situations like that no matter how fashionable you are take your goddamn hat off you can't talk him out of it at some point, you know. Right. And but this isn't a situation where a government functionary is doing that. It's a it's a right eight year old. You can see that this guy really doesn't have. He's like a non combatant. He's just a guy, and and uh, he's going to be used for the process of jumping Agu into the gang. I'm going to lightly push back on that a little bit and say that we do not know for sure that this guy is a bridge engineer. And he is uh, emoting the kind of desperation that anyone would in a circumstance where they see their imminent death. I think that's that confusion, that battlefield confusion, I, I think, is is part of what's baked in here. Is this guy who he says he is? Who knows? But he's a captured uh, he's a captured soldier of some stripe. And it doesn't matter what he says. I think the fact that they that they find that 
uh, that surveyor's scope in, in that same raid confirms the idea that this was a surveying crew or an engineering crew rather than a bunch of soldiers uh, like on a mission. I think that I think those two things are. You don't think he's there to survey how to kill NDF people? I think if you were going to do that, you would use a different scope. And you wouldn't have the other guy with the reflector, right, standing out down. there in a reflecting vest. <laughs> uh-huh. But I think what's interesting about that character and about that scene is that from our from the viewer's perspective, he seems like an educated man, and it's not just in the way he's talking and saying that he's an engineer. But there's something about the way he's dressed, the way he's composed, the way he looks. Uh, that's a great point. He's not grizzled like the rest. Yeah, he's not grizzled. He's he's very much uh he's very much a city person and and seems like um and and seems like a, a a person with class and he has a certain dignity. He wouldn't plead in that same way. And so he becomes a proxy I think for us the viewer to say like wait a minute, this is a this is someone who who is divorced from these village kids who who does there is a city country divide here too right and and then crucially agu's voiceover in praying to god afterwards is that he didn't like killing that guy but he knew it was the right thing to do right but he's saying that to himself i mean agu is repeating that as a as a as a kind of mantra to to absolve himself of that crime. And I think, I think he's, he just experienced his own father being an innocent killed unjustly. Right. And now he is committing that same crime and in a crime. And it's, it's a credit to the commandant's indoctrination, that whole experience at the, at the mountain camp that in such a short time, Agu could become, uh, you know, could have adopted a new worldview. Right. I think uh, we were talking a little bit about the visual inspirations for Kerry Fukunaga, but I think one tonal inspiration for this film has got to be Terrence Malick and the Thin Red Line, especially the how the voiceover pervades a lot of the story. It's mm. it's great visual beauty. I definitely felt some Malick vibes from this film. Did you guys? It's it's a little faster paced than your average Terrence sure. Malick, but. Definitely, I can definitely see the comparison. There aren't quite as many shots up at trees, but there are, and there uh, are and like and like slowly dripping drops of water. Like there's there's moments to catch your breath here that are intentional in that same way. But it yeah. is relentless. I mean, the yeah. film. There are moments to catch your breath, but it's also those those are usually ones where some hell is about to get unleashed. Let's talk about the single. That is a good moment to do that. There is a sequence in the middle of this film that runs three minutes. It's the inside of the home that the kids have raided. And it's an unbroken shot that goes from uh, the child soldier's entry up the stairwell. We're going out to the balcony to shoot down. Then we're going in inside and we're finding uh, a mother and her child, uh, who is briefly mistaken for being Agu's mother before he comes to to terms with the fact that it isn't. And then he runs outside, and then there is the beating of her child. And then when he goes back in, he witnesses the rape of the mother before shooting the mother. And then he goes back out to the balcony, and we're, we're given witness to, to the destruction and the violence on a more, on a, on a wider scale. 
That's one shot? Yeah, that's all one shot. I watched it, I think, five times. Like, I just stopped it and backed it up all over again because it's... I mean, you could you could look at this in a couple of ways. Like, this... Sometimes a sequence like this is viewed as, like, directorial masturbation. Like, look at what I can do. But... I did not think that with this sequence. I thought it was astounding every time I watched it, and it became more astounding with each viewing. And that removes uh, just how awful the scene is that we're watching play out during. There's 10 different things happening throughout the sequence, and all of them, each one is more atrocious than the next. That whole scene, that three minutes, really stood out to me as a different kind of moment in the film i didn't realize that it was because it was one shot but you do feel you do feel point of view and it is just an intense set of uh, uh, it's an intense dance through the whole thing you're making sure your actors hit your spots right as the camera moves but there's also this this element of changing light throughout this sequence that's crazy yeah 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 it is so difficult i think it also makes it feel emotionally like on an emotional level, even if you're not noticing that the that the shot isn't cutting, the emotional continuity somehow registers. So when Agu joins Stryka in stomping the little girl to death and then turns around and shoots the mother, uh, it doesn't feel like you know a presentation of disjointed moments. It is one moment, right? And that really accomplishes something in this scene. It's not just action shot in the frame, but reflected action. Like there's so much happening in the mirror in that bedroom too, both before and after, that uh, it's so controlled and composed for a scene that's meant to evoke like a mania yeah. of sorts. It's really like, look, it's it's hard to recommend the film and, and this specific sequence uh, to people who enjoy film because of what it depicts, but it's really incredible. And if you can possibly stomach it, I think it is worth studying. It's fantastic. To the enemy, you are invincible. Over the past year or so, uh, I've been working on a video project documenting a a domestic violence prevention effort. And I thought a lot about the you know, I mean, like what I was saying earlier, that it almost feels like breaking a taboo to watch this film or like it's a bad thing. And a big takeaway from just kind of being a fly on the wall uh, on this video project has been that the tabooness of it is part of what perpetuates it. Like the fact that it's not talked about, the fact that it's shameful uh, is a part of its power. And... I think that like processing the fact that this kind of stuff exists in the world is important, actually. And it's important to have conversations about it. In particular, in war, because rape is used in war as a as an organized technique and part of its power in war is shame. Right. Right. It's a it is not just it's in some ways it it um, it's the same as wounding soldiers rather than killing them. I mean, it is a strategy in war to wound rather than kill because that exhausts uh, your enemy's resources because they have to deal with wounded. And there are a lot of situations, I think, 
in a battle where it is where it's preferable to not kill your opponent but just to just, just to, to badly injure them to maim right and and rape plays that role because it it, it destabilizes your opponent and it has a lasting destabilizing effect because it's very difficult then for people to reintegrate and to even in peacetime sort of wrestle with the aftermath of rape. And it's a weapon that the commandant uses against his own troops also. Like it's not just this isn't the only scene of sexual violence in the film. Right. The, the d- scene where Agu is raped and then we're made to understand that Stryker has also been and the idea correct me if I'm wrong guys but like is every kid who wears a special hat in the unit been the subject of the commandant's rape because it that changed for Agu like he got the special hat after and then we learn that about Stryker and then you you sort of take a look around and you see how many of these hats have been distributed that was the thing that was that made sense to me I mean the commandant is creating a loyal faction within his own troops uh, like a special bodyguard of young boys and he's used shame to to inspire almost like a, a Stockholm syndrome kind of loyalty from these boys. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the scene where he takes them to, you know, he's summoned by the Supreme Commander and that veil kind of falls away because he's treated with such disrespect by the, the apparatus of the NDF that he works under. Right, he goes from being the absolute king and god to being a guy in line at the DMV. <laughs> right, he sits in the anteroom for a whole night. There's so much about that scene that's amazing. amazing. I think beginning with the setting, like we've gone from the jungle to basically what looks like a college campus and all the cleanliness of that, some nice metal benches, a man in a suit with a suitcase waiting mm-hmm. his turn. Uh, a Chinese guy. Yeah. It was such a difference in feeling, and and that, that that difference in setting coincided with the difference in feeling that Commandant was was experiencing that moment in time. I thought it was just a really deft maneuver for the story. Yeah, big time. Really messing with expectations there, and then and realizing like, oh, you're one of dozens of Commandants, and I mean, he gradually understands that he's a liability, that that the war crimes are going to get pinned on him Yeah, that this civilian leadership is going to start to try and as, as they transition into a real government, they're going to start disavowing the actions of their uh, commanders in the field and how long-term conflicts usually uh, pivot into PR wars at a right. certain moment. Right. And decisions are made based on that. I wondered so much when two IC was elevated to commandant, whether we were going to see him try and assume that God King position for the troops. Because 2IC is, he's revealed throughout the movie. I mean, he's a competent soldier, but also kind of cowardly. Um, He does not have the leadership qualities that Commandant espouses and, and practices. But he would be a better Commandant transitioning to regular army kind of, rule follower i kind of want to scrutinize that a little bit because like 2ic ducks sometimes he does i don't think that makes him a coward it's i think (laughs) i think it's like you look at him standing next to commandant and you could get that feel but like there's a (laughs) 
I don't. I don't think he's a coward. But I mean, Commandant yells at him a few times, and he gets very. I mean, he he does not have a lot of second in command mm-hmm. kind of personal authority. Yeah. Uh, just just in the way he responds. I mean, he he has a look on his face throughout where he is dubious of the commandant's god status. Uh, he he's the only one that looks at him with kind of questioning eyes. Right. But he also, yeah, he he's he recognizes that bullets kill. Um, <laughs> that but, makes him a genius yeah, in this right. squad. But I don't think I. <laughs> I think in that moment, in that moment where he's elevated by the commander, and then two IC says, "No, you're coming with me." And 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 two two IC, I, I think I think commandant pretty clearly has him executed by that prostitute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the fact that 2IC can't break the grip of Commandant's leadership, even though in that moment he could have said, no, I'm not going with you. I'm staying here at headquarters to get my orders. You know, I mean, he follows Commandant to his death, even against his will. There's so many different kinds of fear we experience in this film. And one of them is the fear of someone powerful who has just been disappointed. Yeah. That room just goes cold as soon as we realize that. I know. I can imagine that you two guys feel that on this show a lot. (laughs) Another fear I feel is the backlash that we will get if I don't say something pedantic about the movie or if I don't quote something pedantic about the movie that a person on the internet wrote. So I will share with you guys this trifle. When Agu is first captured by the NDF and made to carry a crate of ammunition, it is a crate of 556 by 45 millimeter rounds, according to the markings on the crate. Curiously, neither side in the Civil War uses weapons that chamber this round. The NDF forces all carry Kalashnikov variants, chambered in 762 by 39 millimeter, while the NRC soldiers favor HKG3 variants chambered in 762 by 51 millimeters. Interesting. Probably going to experience a lot of jams. Yeah, right. Those Heckler and Koch uh, guns are great if you're if you're guarding the Swedish Parliament. Yeah, but, but, but down, uh, in the, down in the no, mud, no little, use in the in the gold mines. They're a little they're a little finely calibrated. If you go on our friendly fire Facebook page, there and I think this is also true on the Reddit. There's a there's a wonderful fan of the program who who has a segment of his own on the Facebook page <laughs> called The Guns of Friendly Fire, where he wow. he delves into uh, weapons that are used in various films and talks about them in, in detail. How about that? Yeah, Guns of Friendly I'm Fire. I'm terrified of that person. <laughs> <laughs> we actually have uh, uh, on our Facebook page quite a few people who are... Um, Gun Who hate me and want to kill me? <laughs> well, not just on the, not just in the Facebook page. Yeah, here on here on the program. That's there, always there been true, us. Ben. <laughs> it's just now you know about it. Um, I thought uh, that might be a good way of transitioning into the gold mine scene where Commandant is is betrayed and abandoned by his men. Uh, I thought this was an amazing sequence both in terms of like what a what a difference it is visually like we've been in such dense foliated places for the most part and suddenly we're in this kind of sun-scorched gold mine and the like disgusting water-filled trenches that they've dug to 
I guess either defend it or mine for gold or both. Yeah, why not both? Yeah. Would this have been a diamond mine? Yeah, Sierra Leone is is I mean, this is the this is the territory of the blood diamond too, right? The um uh the diamonds that are mined to fund weapons purchases and and um totalitarian governments. So there's there's uh there's and, gold and the there, great but... people at De Beers. Let's just <laughs> yeah. give it up for them. <laughs> just a great global citizens. Just paragons of virtue in the world. <laughs> yeah. So this is. I mean, this is ground zero of the of the blood diamond trade. But it, it in this scene, Commandant is not has not successfully mined for diamonds or gold here. This is where he loses. He's, he's lost control, and now he loses everyone's respect. You can't not feed your army. He makes a really interesting case that, like, they don't really have a reasonable recourse to being his army, though. Like, he says, like, what are you going to do? If you go out there and try and join up with another NDF group, they're going to treat you like deserters, like, like uh, the betrayers that you are. You're going to be arrested by anybody else that, that you find. Can't so be reintegrated like, into society, right? He's uh, he's broken them beyond repair, and he lets them know it. And for the older, you know, for the for the you know guys that aren't miners anymore, that is true. When they when the UN forces capture them, those guys are on the ground getting zip tied while the kids are loaded into a truck and taken to kind of like a deprogramming camp. Yeah, you you wonder within the within the culture, they're they're so bonded to one another as a troop, yeah, uh, almost as a tribe. And you you at that moment, I wondered if they'd just thrown their guns down and taken their magic hats off and just dispersed, and each person headed their own direction and came out in a village wherever they were. Uh, you know, they're not they're not marked by anything other than dead eyes. Could right. they just claim to be refugees as well well their experience doing exactly that led them to the commandant right right so so if the if the war is coming to an end which is kind of implied you know i mean if you showed up in a village and were like hi i'm sort of a stranger here but everyone i know was killed you wouldn't be alone in that either but i don't think it was i don't think it was even conceivable to them because they were so so bound to one another at that point they they could only think to act as a as a unit i wondered what the people that work for the un and other ngos that do this kind of work do to determine whether a kid goes to deprogramming camp or gets arrested because it's not like these guys are carrying passports around that say what their birth date was some of these guys must be edge cases, you know. Well, and I think it's I think we see in that in that coming back to civilization, you know, they are then re-entering a world of NGOs where the idea of a child soldier we we see we see the the full scope here where a child to the commandant represents not just a warm body but somebody that he can uh that he can indoctrinate and inculcate a kind of, uh, you know, there's nothing more brutal than a teenage boy because their, their executive function hasn't matured and, um, you know, they can be very effective killers. 
so we see them we see them we see these boys used as the raw material of a of a rebel group and then they come back into civilization and they're seen as boys again who need to learn math and need to process their emotion and that's a very ngo kind of um again it's that seems more familiar to us as western viewers that mentality but it is a mentality right it's as much a mentality as as the yeah. other mentality it's, it's just it's a, a view of how the world can and should work right is being is being laid on these kids in the same way that the uh, the previous you know their previous superior was laying a, a worldview on them yeah right that woman who says like you know share with me what happened to you and he's like you haven't been in war how could you possibly ask me? i mean he's so contemptuous of this adult woman and then we see him and I, I think this is maybe a little pandering to us we see him kind of not break down but he starts to say like i don't want to talk about it because i did some bad things and i and you're not going to like me but what if he didn't do that what if he just sat there stone-faced it's definitely troubling when combatants walk back into the into the world we know. There are definitely people in the United States who are funding this because the because the idea of child soldier is something they can grab a hold of and understand as a as a sort of I mean there's so many people brutalized in this conflict and child soldier becomes a thing that you can I mean, you can bring a child soldier to the United States and it's a very sympathetic situation that's that's understandable in a thumbnail. Nobody leaves a conflict like this unscathed. A few years ago, I was doing some filming for an NGO and somebody was telling me about how a lot of these like big, you know, international NGOs that set out to do a public health thing will pick like vaccination against disease X as a as a thing because when they go back to their funders they can say we vaccinated 60,000 people against disease X and it's like a very simple win where it's like right. like the the calculus is easily quantifiable and like deprogramming child soldier might might be the same thing where it's like yeah like we ha- we like got like 300 kids at this camp and like 25 of them have gone to high school now or something like that. Yeah, where where money is involved, your your results need to be measurable. Yeah. You've spent quite a bit of time in West Africa, Ben, more than more than we have. Was the did this feel familiar to you? I haven't spent a ton of time in West Africa. I've spent more time in East Africa, but the like what I'll say is that the house that he lives in and the idea that his father has some land at uh, at the beginning to me meant that he was sort of toward the upper middle of the uh, of the social stratification in his village at at the beginning like they you know they had a they had a house with like doors and electricity and and like that's not typical for most people in that part of the world like there's lots of you know everybody everybody has a a house or whatever but like there are a lot of sort of unplanned and informal informal developments where people live in mud huts and they have one room for their entire family and and stuff so 
Like the the way his family was presented read to me as like he had uh, quite a bright future ahead of him in that he had access to education, probably access to limited health care. He had some, you know, some parents that really cared about him and stuff. I, you know, I have not been anywhere near a conflict like this, so I, um, I couldn't couldn't really speak to that. But the it's so different from place to place that it's it's hard to know if the comparisons I have to make are entirely accurate or not. But it real, you know, what it really reminded me of was I went to a town in Ethiopia called Bahardar that was. Uh, and and visited some some people's homes who were middle class and would you know be astonishingly poor by american standards but were middle class by the standards of that area and 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 like those rural places where <laughs> the long arm of global capitalism doesn't seem to be uh touching yet are are interesting because you do see like Chinese construction companies, you know, building a bypass that you're like, what the hell is this for? And, uh, and like, like that, that little subtle, uh, moment where there was just like a Chinese businessman who was obviously semi terrified to be there, uh, at the Supreme commander's offices was, and then, and then the, the real opulence of those offices, like those were fancy, that was a fancy place to be by anybody's standards, uh, in some of the rooms anyways. And, uh, and that's something that I, I felt was really well drawn and, and representative of, of the kind of disparity of wealth that I've seen. Yeah. The presence of the, the Chinese guy, although very brief in the movie, it really sets the, that moment apart. The Chinese presence in Africa and in the, develop, the development of Africa, the ongoing right now is uh, is extraordinary and something that we're there's not a lot of reporting on, and we're most Americans aren't aware of it. I mean, it's the same kind of economic imperialism that we practice. They're like the Chinese are investing heavily in their relationships with African countries because of the resource wealth that they have the untapped resource wealth that they have and they're just doing a better job of it than we are right in africa commander? well no one can do a better job of rating a war film than the hosts of friendly fire each film on friendly fire gets its own custom rating system designed by me based on an object that catches my eye in the film and there is a great great object in Beasts of No Nation comes from that scene where they go and meet uh, the Supreme Commander, which, by the way, I wanted to note that if you're living on a diet of crickets and leaves and then you grab a donut for each finger and eat all of those donuts, that is a recipe for some real grumble guts. You're going to have a stomach <laughs> the, ache. The aftermath of that scene we don't see, but uh, could be another scene of violence yeah. in a certain way. <laughs> <laughs> a, a kind of violence with which you're on intimate terms, Adam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this moment is punctuated by uh, a lot of things. Some of them is that is that buffet, but another thing is the jacket that the Supreme Commander wears, the short sleeve, white, 
suit jacket. You guys are big fans of of the clothes and some of these war films. What did you guys think of that jacket? That jacket, of course, is going to be the rating system for this film. Wow. I'll tell you why in a moment. <laughs> I don't like a lot of tropical wear. I know that it's a that it's a segment of menswear. I wear Hawaiian shirts um, almost exclusively from May to August, or I'm sorry, May to October. But all that kind of uh, Gaia and short sleeved. I mean the the Bahamanian. Uh, short pants with a, with as a component of a suit. I don't like it. I don't think you should show your skin. <laughs> I think that you should from neck from neck to wrists you should be covered at all times, unless in a Hawaiian shirt. There was a moment where J. Crew tried to convince the world that a suit could be worn with shorts. Yeah, and that was that was when I got off the J. Crew train. That wow. Moment. Yeah, it's the Bermuda thing. You can't do that. Now with these legs. <laughs> Not a fan of the work work of Tom Brown. I don't. Uh, I don't have the calves that Ben does. You you got off the J Crew train and waved as Ben yeah. went over the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I I heard the next one's Uniqlo. <laughs> Catch that one. Anyway, uh, you know a lot of a person's power is connoted by how they look and supreme commander is one of those people it's not just a big red sectional couch that you get to sleep on or the buffet of snacks in the next room as soon as he walks into the room he commands your attention uh he could have had a uniform on yeah but he did not he did not you know why because uh the ideas that he were that he's espousing are not military in that moment they're political and you look at him and you can see that he is not he is not a military general. He is a president. And that is what the white short sleeve suit jacket tells us. And that's the sort of power that Idris Elba's character has. You, when you look at him, you know who he is. You know who those children are by seeing what they're wearing. That garment, I think, says a lot. And I think it's a film that says a lot with how it looks. I don't know if we'll see a better looking war film in this project. It is just so incredible. Every frame so composed. The color choices are incredible shot to shot. I think everything is so intentional that it was almost fatiguing. It's fatiguing emotionally, but it's also fatiguing visually for that reason. I think you I think three quarters of the way through you might forget just how great looking this is because you might just be palette shot. I think that was a comment that Ben made earlier on, like like you just get overloaded on this stuff. But I think in addition to how it looks, there might not be a more pure war film that we've seen on Friendly Fire because you see it all. You see the pre-war calm uh, and goodness of a person's life. You see their conscription and loss of innocence due to uh, things they had nothing to do with. Like war is visited upon Agu here and when he loses his family he loses his innocence and he loses everything else in in very short order and he's turned into something totally different than what he was in the beginning I think imagination TV is such an interesting place to start in this film because you can't program a child to be a warrior without their inherent ability to imagine like like you're, you're manipulating a child's ability to do that and using it 
for these violent ends. And that's sort of the thing that Agu shuts off at the end when he has that moment with a the therapist, right? Like, I don't want to go back to that place of imagination. Like, in order to awaken those stories in him means to um, awaken that part of his psyche, and he just can't do it. That part about trying to live post-war is the final chapter in this war story. And its continuity is one of the things that makes the film great. You see beginning, middle, and end. And its realism is hard to watch, but like I don't consider it the same way that I consider Come and See. I think it's a better film. It may be because of its gloss. For all of those reasons, this is why this is as good as war films get for me. And I am going to give it all five suit jackets for that reason. It's just beautifully done and an incredible story and a hard story, but all of that works together for me. I will also give it five jackets for the same reason. Uh, I was wrecked by this movie. Uh, It was a heap of tears on the couch at the end of it. and Did your wife watch it with you? She did. Wow. And, And she was as well. It was hard for both of us to watch. And I think that it's important to know that you will be wrecked by the time you're done watching this movie. Um, but I think it's it's really worth watching. And, you know, that when he's talking to her at the end and, and you know, it may you, you may be right, John, that it's a bit like of emotional pandering or, or kind of you know, catharsis that's not always not always wrought by uh, people who go through this, but you feel when he's thinking about her in his head as a small child and he's an old man, like you understand how different his perspective on this is from hers. Like you really feel like you've been through it with him, like you feel like you have seen the things that he has seen. And it's an illusion, but it's it's an effective illusion. And then when he says like that, he's a, some kind of beast or a devil and that he really did do bad things. And that, I mean, it just, it just guts you. And the idea that there is some kind of life after that, that, that he, you know, that, and it's all, it is only implied by the fact that he's able to, let his shoulders relax and run into into the surf and play with the other boys. But the idea that there is some way to rehabilitate a child like that is like very boy, if the if the movie had ended on any any less optimistic note, <laughs> I would just be lying in bed right now, staring at the ceiling fan, you know? I think it's I think it's one of the great movies we've watched and um uh, I don't think I would have put it on without this project and I'm glad I did sort of testimony to the to the breadth that uh, that the Appalachian war movie covers um, to put this in the same in the same feed as Kelly's heroes or <laughs> mash um, or even Bridget Remagen, um, you know this is one of the this is one of the films that tries to depict what war is but no one is a hero here no one ever steps in and stops an atrocity no one shows some superhuman character 
And in a way, by the end of the movie, it also feels like maybe there's no villain. Even the commandant left there ranting in his chair, you, um, you have sympathy for, and in a way you have sympathy for him through the whole film. Uh, without him and his organizing principle, um, I mean, Agu was 15 minutes away from getting eaten by a leopard. Uh, so, you know, he did give these kids a home and an education and I mean, brutal uh, in a brutal world. Uh, the commandant didn't invent this world. He's not. And we see at the end of the movie, he's not the, he's not the political leader either. He's been given a job. Um, but to watch this movie is, um, I really feel like a profound experience and it, and the idea that this film didn't have a wide release because AMC theaters didn't want or wanted to punish Netflix is just so base and a squandered opportunity. We've seen movies before that, that uh, we felt like were underappreciated or sort of astonishing. And they're often smaller budget movies or you know what what you would call small movies that have an enormous impact and this is one adam i felt like you were so eloquent in describing what made this movie special and i often um will get halfway through a movie and, and feel like i've got a rating for it and i i get that feeling of like oh you know please movie like either don't disappoint me uh, as the, as we wind to a close or in some cases, you know, as I'm formulating my rating, I'm like, come on movie, you can do better than this, you know, surprise me by the end. But from start to finish, this film has a consistent quality that you just don't often see performances, the look and feel of the movie, the, the message of it, whatever that message is, the message is sort of um that you don't feel the hand of the director in the in the sense that he's not moralizing uh that and when i said that little teeny bit at the end there was pandering i mean it was the smallest bit uh ben you 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 nailed it it was not pandering that and that it all felt like it um disgraced the movie there's just no pandering it's just straight ahead and there's no brutality for the sake of brutality either. Everything in the movie serves it. And it's absolutely a five short sleeved white jacket movie. Um, I just endorse it emphatically. And, and we've talked a lot about it being a brutal watch. I, I think it's, um, I think in a way it's less brutal than some other movies we've seen. It's very emotionally affecting you're not, there's nothing in the, you don't see anyone's brains. There's no guts in this, you know, there's no like gratuitous violence and blood. And I often find those movies where people are like the Mel Gibson movie, um, where you're just being splattered with SpaghettiOs all through the film is infinitely worse, but it's not emotionally affecting because you feel like this is stupid. Right. And what this movie does is it doesn't subject you to that much on-screen violence. It just 
it just uh, tears your heart out. So yeah, uh, strongest endorsement. There's one last endorsement we need to give before the show is over, and that's the endorsement we give to a guy. A lot of guys in this movie. We, we only know a few of them that well. Ben, who's your guy? My guy is DK. The, uh, he's the star of Imagination TV at the beginning of the movie. He, his was the face. He's got such a great face, right? Such a fun yeah. little guy. Yeah. He steals the show. And I think that his establishment early on as a friend and then, you know, his abandonment once the, once the danger becomes imminent, you know, like as a character, we don't see him anymore after, you know, we see the, you know, we see the men meeting in the church about what to do now that the uh that the buffer zone is evaporating and i don't think we see dk after that but a i thought weaker about him film would have brought him back huh right i thought about him all through this film yeah. and what happened to him and, and what befell him he seemed too small to become to you know to be useful as a soldier but maybe uh, he was swept up the same way uh, that Agu was. Maybe he was killed. Maybe he made it with his family to the city. Very hard to know. And I think that that was very, very deft as a choice. Um, and he's also just the most charming little guy. Uh, he, he knows how to do the kung fu. He knows how to dance. He's got it all. Hell of a salesman. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Adam, did you have a guy? Your guy is really great. Uh, my guy, not as great. <laughs> there is a, there is a man. Well, it's in not this, a competition, Adam. There's a man in this film that you can't help but notice, uh, because he is mostly naked and that, and by, by that, of course, I mean tripod, the shredded naked dude, one of, uh, one of the commandant's lieutenants. Uh, you get the sense that he is carrying out, uh, well, you don't, it's not suggested, like you see many of the atrocities that he commits, but I think I'm going to make him my guy for the specific reason of, of like, he's one of the guys that Kerry Fukunaga recruited, uh, from Sierra Leone and, and the Liberian civil war. Like he was in the Liberian armed forces during that civil war. This guy anointed Wessa is the actor's name. And he insisted as a choice that he be naked in his scenes. And, you know, this film is filled with real faces of people who were there and real bodies who have experienced war trauma and occasionally great big penises. And (laughs) (laughs) Tripod was all of those things. Like, I, I found him in every frame that he was in. He was just an incredible looking dude by any measure. And I'm making the actor my guy, specifically not Tripod, the character my guy, just because he represents a big part of this film. He's a guy who was there and he's a guy who's put in front of camera and he's sharing a frame with Idris Elba. His name, his actual given name is Anointed Wessa. Yeah. And I think he's a proxy for many of the other actors in this film. And I just want to recognize his contribution to the film. Uh, Unclothed or otherwise, like, 
uh, hundreds of people were in this film, a lot like Anointed Wessa, doing great and difficult work. You know, like Agu at the end is talking all about how difficult it is to leave that part of their of his life behind. Anointed Wessa is made to relive it in this film. And his is a story that is shared by 200 other people in this film. So think about that. Well, going into this segment, uh, this almost never happens, but Anointed Wessa was my guy also. Oh. He's astonishing. Yeah. But we don't, I don't take my guy from you. I, my guy and your guy cannot be the same guy. I do want to also give some props to Anointed. But in that case, my guy is uh, the witch woman, mm. the crazy lady from the village who um, is so, she's so ranty and so dismissed in her first appearance in the film. Uh, but then she plays a pivotal role and you don't get a full sense that the government troops are knowingly exploiting her um, her lack of connection to reality in order to just, you know, use her as a, as an accuser, but she's directly responsible for Agu's father and brother being killed. And she, she stands in this super important kind of position where, um, when the tides change and the, the, the system that used to be what you felt like was the most dependable aspect of your life, the government, your father, the culture of the village, what everyone knew, which is that this person is respectable and that person isn't. When that's overturned and suddenly you have a situation where the person with the, with the thinnest grasp on reality is being treated as an authority, where it's enough that one person accuse you of something and that is a life and death accusation uh you know the that group of men is is firing squatted uh because they pull her out and they're using her as the authority who are these guys and she's like i've never seen them before they're rebels and these are the, the men of the village uh so she plays a she plays a major role in that moment and i think it's um it's the point at which you realize that everything's upside down and it happened. It happened in an instant. Uh, all the, all the power that Agu's father had as a landowner and as someone who, uh, who had authority and Agu's education and all these things, they're just upside down. The, 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 the witch is, is the one making the call. The last person you want to see in that scene. Yeah. Right. So she's my guy. Good guy. Do you guys want to uh, pick our next movie, or are we done? <laughs> Did we get to the end of Friendly Fire? Where's my dice? Oh no, John! Tell me you didn't lose it. Oh my! See, this is this is why I should have held on to the die and not just left it here. My villainous little child took it. Let me check what we here. need is one of those Bluetooth trackers for it. Like we need a little tile, a little tile connected to the <laughs> so you, to the die. You don't want to lose your keys. You don't want to lose your die. Look, look around here. 
Wait, you think you think I'm gonna miss a a grapefruit sized green die on the table? Hang on. She's messing with forces she can't understand. Man. Oh wait, there it is. I found it. Yay! Hey! Yay! Okay. Boy, that was close. Yeah, we almost close. didn't have another show. That was close. I can't can't move forward without it. All right, here we go. Ninety-three. Ninety-three. The magic die. We're staying on theme, another extraordinarily brutal film. Uh, this is a World War II film from 2011, directed by Joe Johnston. It is Captain America, The First Adventure. Oh, no. This isn't a war movie. Come on. Why is this not a pork chop movie? <laughs> I don't know, man. You're the one that, you're the one that split them up. <laughs> this, was, this was on there from before then. Oh. This is like a Mentos dropped into a Diet Coke. <laughs> this is the palate cleanser we need, right? Captain America, yeah. first Avenger. I, you know, I ended up seeing this in the in the theaters because uh, because I felt some nerd pressure to be <laughs> fully acquainted with the Marvel universe at that point in my life. Mm. Yeah. Have you guys? I'm sure both saw it because you're teenage boys. No, I am. I am not a consumer of the. Uh, MCU. Wow. What about Ben Shirley? You did. I did see this movie in the theaters, but I don't remember anything about it at all. Oh, what an endorsement. I saw the the last, you know, the Adventures in Games, and there was like stuff in it about Captain America that was like, I don't, I don't know what this stuff is. I remember some things about it because there's a pretty good special effect at the beginning mm. um, that stuck with me as an example of pretty good special effects based filmmaking but other than that uh, yeah I, th- I feel like went in one ear and out the other <laughs> yeah well let's see if this forgettable film makes a case for itself in uh, in a rewatch next week on friendly fire so I'll leave it with robs from here for john roderick and adam pranica i've been ben harrison to the victor go the spoiler alerts Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Benjamin Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of our listeners, like you. And you can make sure that the show continues by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. As an added bonus, you'll receive our monthly pork chop episode, as well as all the fantastic bonus content for Maximum Fun. If you'd like to discuss the show online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. John is at John Roderick. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Is that the doorbell? It sounds like a Hang like on. a grandfather clock. Or Hang a on, doorbell. just a second, Ben. Okay. Yep. Boom, 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 <laughs> boom. Sorry about this, Rob. <laughs> Rob. <laughs>
Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.